Hi, my name is JC and welcome to the class podcast. We're here to engage in conversation that adds to our mental and emotional toolbox. Every week, I'm going to be joined by one of our teachers as a co-host as we chat with those that inspire us. Thanks for being here. Welcome to another episode here. Saray Wilson is back as my co-host today. Hello. Hello. Such a pleasure to be back with you. Happy to have you hosting with me again. This is a very inspiring episode. Do you, you want to tell the people who our special guest is today? I would love to. Today, we have the pleasure of talking with Suleika Jawad. You may know her from her New York Times column called Life Interrupted. She is a writer and an inspirer. And as a cancer survivor, we talk to her about what it's like to live, what it's like to almost die, and the journeys that she takes in between. Like Jay said, such a special episode, and I hope you enjoy. So happy to have you join us. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for being here. Oh, I'm so excited. You look like you're in a very cozy kind of cabin of sorts. I am. I just converted what used to be the old shed on our property into an office. The only problem is it has no heat. (laughs) <laughs> Except for this little wood stove that you can maybe see behind me. I don't know if you can. Um, yeah. So it's been an adventure. <laughs> it's such an honor to to meet you. And it's been a real touching, moving journey for us to dig into your work and your life story. And just the offering that you now share from your journey and how that's inspiring others. So thank you. Well, thank you. So you're... Your TED Talk was just really, again, touching, moving, inspiring. Can you share just a little bit of what that experience was like for you? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it was all those things. It was terrifying. Um, It was a lot of work. It was also so fun. I don't think I've ever had a worse case of imposter syndrome in my life. But it was also such a honor, but also a challenge to try to figure out how to condense all of my work and and my own story into, you know, 13 minutes or 15 minutes or whatever it was. And I truly think that everyone should write a fake TED talk and put themselves to the challenge of figuring out if they had 13 minutes to say something, what is it? I do love that idea. That's like, I feel like that would be one of your prompts from um, <laughs> from your journal project that you did. I recently heard someone describe their negative self-talk as like a very convincing, very uninspiring version of a TED Talk, which I also loved. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> what is the TED Talk that's just playing in your head on loop? That's okay. the very opposite of motivating and inspiring. So both exercises feel equally valuable. So for some of our listeners that are maybe tuning into you for the first time and your story, you're at 22 years old, you had a very life altering shift of being diagnosed with leukemia and were given a, I think it was a 35% chance of a long-term survival. Your whole world changed in an instant and 
for the next, those next four years, you lived in and out of the hospital and used a lot of your own journey here to focus your energy on survival. And through that, your gift of writing became one of the things that, that really carried you, carried you through this journey. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I graduated from college and I moved to Paris to work as a paralegal, um, which was not my dream job, though I was grateful for it. Um, but I really wanted to become a foreign correspondent. Um, that was my dream. It was something I felt like I'd been preparing for. And pretty much overnight after months of being misdiagnosed with things like burnout syndrome, I uh, went into the emergency room and the doctor told me, that if my red blood cell count went any lower, I wouldn't be allowed to board a plane. So basically Mm. within 24 hours, I packed up my things. I left my job and my apartment and I was on a flight home. And it was one of those moments where there was like a very clear fracture. Um, There was my life before BC, I call it before cancer and everything that came after. But I think the kind of unexpected piece of all that was that, you know, I'd always thought of myself as someone who loved to write, who was super creative, but survival became its own kind of creative act in a way that I hadn't expected or really thought of before. When you are someone who lives with limitations like everything requires an act of imagination. And during the time I was in treatment, I had very little energy. I had about like three hours a day where I could do things. I had to get really specific about what I wanted to do in those three hours. And I always say it's kind of a useful thought exercise for all of us. Like if you were to only have three hours a day where you could do something, what would you do with that time? And for me, that was a return to writing. I started journaling and little by little in that process, I started to tap into a different kind of writing. I really feel like I was able to kind of hone in on what my voice was because illness was like this omnipresent beast. It also became my subject matter. At 23, I launched my New York Times column, Life Interrupted, from my hospital room and became a very different kind of foreign correspondent (laughs) to the one I had imagined and started reporting from the front lines of my hospital bed. I love that concept that you just spoke about, creativity being your your sword, right? It's Mm -hmm. like the creativity being the, the thing that you're showing up and wielding when it feels like maybe that's like it's all been taken away from you. You said that's when you started your your column and it's like when you started writing, is that how you saw it? You were just like, no, you will not <laughs> take this away from me. I think I turned to creativity more out of desperation when you're stuck in bed, especially when you're in your early 20s and you know, you're like seeing your friends starting jobs and going on dates and traveling in the world and all the other kind of big and small milestones of early adulthood. It was hard for me not to feel so profoundly isolated and stuck. 
And when I first started treatment, I had all these kind of ambitious ideas of what I would do in that time. I thought I would maybe like enroll in a creative writing class or I don't know, read all the books that I'd always meant to read, but I didn't have the energy to do any Mm -hmm. of that. Really for me, that writing that I did came from the question of how can I make something useful of this experience? How can I transform my place of confinement into a space of imagination? Like, what is there to be learned here? What truths can I excavate? What can I learn about myself? What questions am I grappling with that might resonate with others? So it was really this process of self-examination that was new to me, both because, you know, I was 23, but also because I thought of myself as someone who would tell, who would help other people tell their stories. And it was really my first time writing in the first person and memoir and personal essays get a lot of flack for being (laughs) this navel gazing genre, but that's been the opposite of my experience. I think when you dare to be vulnerable and when you dare to share unvarnished truths about your life or about the world, there's a way in which that first person that I very quickly becomes a you and a we, and there's a really beautiful reverberation that happens. You mentioned that here you are at this point, 23, and as you describe the writing process becoming this creative process, which became uh, like a spiritual process for you. At that age, did you have, was there anything else that you were, that you were hanging on to using as a way to support your process from a spiritual place, from a religious place, from just uh, focusing your energy space? Mm-hmm. So my mom was raised Catholic, my dad was raised Muslim, and I grew up in a household that was a mishmash of all those beliefs. So, you know, when I was in Switzerland visiting my family, I would go to like Easter uh, mass. And when I was in Tunisia visiting my dad's family, we would fast during Ramadan and like slaughter a lamb during Eid. I don't think that I had much of a spiritual practice when we were here in the U.S. Uh, My parents raised us in this very secular household. And it wasn't really until my diagnosis that I started to think about spirituality and what place it might have in my life. Um, And I can remember the first time I ever prayed, it was my first night in the bone marrow transplant unit at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And I was preparing to undergo this like very scary process with my brother who was going to be my bone marrow donor. And it was my only shot at a cure and the transplant was incredibly dangerous. And I kind of got out of my bed. I pulled my IV pole and I got down to the floor. I had this very simple prayer. Um, And as I kind of muttered my prayer, I kept thinking about how many other people in that same hospital room had probably made some kind of haggling 
bargain with a higher power. It was a three-word prayer. It was more, you know, of a plea really than a prayer. And it was just, let me live. And I think those prayers that are made from a place of desperation can be some of our most powerful prayers. And those three words, let me live, seem simple, but they really became my quest, not just during treatment, but once treatment ended in terms of figuring out what living actually meant. Because as I learned, there's a really big difference between surviving and living. Let me live. I feel like I just want to soak in that. It's interesting. I used to really refrain from prayer. And in the last, I mean, the state of the world in the last year, I think particularly I I have come to reimagine what prayer could really be, whether I'm praying to a God or higher power. Like sometimes it is just that, right? It's not like, dear God, I pray mm-hmm. today. It's just like yeah. this, this almost a plea or affirmation or just a mm-hmm. few simple words of, of self-proclamation of that moment. Yeah. You know, letting that, the deepest part of ourself be in dialogue is what mm-hmm. it really feels like rather than this intellectual or I need to follow a rule or I need to do this right. Yeah, it really, for me at least, feels like a conversation with the unknown. Hmm. The unknown in my own life, the unknown in a a greater sense. Earlier you mentioned BC, before cancer, and then Mm -hmm. after cancer. Mm -hmm. (laughs) When you did start to to live again, right? You said such a difference between survival and living. And it might, I feel like the question is so small compared to what the answer probably is. But I mean, if there's one thing, and we'll talk about your memoir next, but like, what is that? What for you became really the difference of just, I'm living my life and I'm doing the day to day. And like, no, I am living my life Mm. now. People throw around all kinds of phrases that there's this like idea that we should live every day as if it's our last, Mm -hmm. which I think is like useful in a way. But if we all actually did that, then our world would be a disaster. It would (laughs) in flames. But, you know, when I was in the throes of sickness, there was this way in which I only lived in the present. The past kind of reminded me of everything that was no longer and the future became this very scary place. I didn't think too far into the future because I didn't know if I was going to get to exist in the future. One of the big shifts for me was how do I stay present, but also allow myself to dream and allow myself to think ahead. Because I think in some ways, dreaming about the future or planning for the future is an act of hope that is daring and Mm -hmm. can feel risky and even dangerous. That was one piece of it. Uh, The other piece of it for me was after spending so much time feeling so vulnerable in my own body and dependent on caregivers and, you know, my healthcare team, I really had to learn how to become my own caregiver. 
my world had narrowed so much, literally, you know, to the size of uh, a bubble to a hospital room for a long time. I realized that there was this way in which I could stay in this small, safe bubble because the outside world felt kind of scary and overwhelming to me. And not only, you know, had to learn to take care of myself, but I really wanted to thrust myself back into the world and to figure out how to navigate it alone. As you re-entered in this, this new space, I mean, you're still young at 27 around there of being discharged and beginning this new chapter of your life. And I can only imagine physically how you were feeling and mentally and emotionally and the amount of energy that you had or, or didn't have. Was there a, a lot of unprocessed emotion and in such a traumatic accumulation of years that just felt like you, you had to do something with it? There was somewhere where it needed to go. The strange thing about cancer or really like surviving anything that's thought to be unsurvivable is that when you do survive, there's this way in which that seems like it should be the end point. Like we talk a lot about a cure, but for me, what I very quickly realized is that the end point of healing was not a, a cure. That was actually where the work of healing began. But it took me a while to figure out what to do with that because there was also this expectation that I should feel excited and full of joy and gratitude to have made it through this thing when in fact um, I felt more lost than I'd ever felt. I was kind of reeling on a physical bodily level from you know three and a half years of treatment. I was grieving, not just, you know, the friends that I met through treatment who had passed away, but I was grieving all kinds of losses. I was Mm -hmm. grieving the person I'd been. The big piece of it for me was that I realized I couldn't go back to the person I was pre-diagnosis. I was no longer a cancer patient, but I had no idea who I was. And so that became my work to figure out what healing actually looks like for me to figure out who I was and how to find my footing back in the world. Your memoir comes out. It's a story of that journey of like you essentially rediscovering that purpose of of living. I love it. I want you to tell us in your own words, what is it? What can we expect from Between Two Kingdoms? So Between Two Kingdoms, The title's a reference to a line from the brilliant writer Susan Sontag, who describes how we all have dual citizenship in the kingdom of the sick and in the kingdom of the well, and that it's only a matter of time until we use our passport in that other place. So I think I had this this idea that when I finished treatment, I would just kind of be like deported back to the kingdom of the well. But instead, I found myself kind of lost in between. Um, On paper, I was better. uh, But off paper, I couldn't have felt further from being like the happy, 
independent 27 year old that I wanted to be. I, you know, was still dealing with a lot of kind of physical side effects from my illness. And I, you know, was had all kinds of questions like, how do I get a job if I need to nap for four hours in the middle of the day? Or like, how do you even begin dating when you're coming out of an experience like this? Like, do I mention that I just finished treatment? How do I explain all these scars on my body? Is it even responsible for me to enter into a relationship or to like think about long-term commitments like marriage or children when I have a high likelihood of getting sick again? Those were all the questions that were swirling around in my head. And for a while, my way of sort of fitting myself back into the kingdom of the well was by like looking around me to like my other healthy friends in their twenties, almost like a character study being like, okay, this is what healthy, normal 27 year olds do. I need to go out dancing. I need to do that. But it wasn't at all organic or intuitive and it didn't feel good because I wasn't ready for any of that. I started to realize that I didn't have discharge instructions or like protocols to help me find my way forward. And that I was going to need to create some kind of healing plan for myself. And I got really into studying rites of passage. Like we have so many rites of passage in our culture. We have weddings and sweet 16s and funerals and bar mitzvahs. And these rites of passage exist to kind of usher us from one stage of our life to another. And I realized I needed to invent my own rite of passage. And I decided that I was going to go on a road trip and that I was going to travel around the country and visit some of the different strangers who'd been writing me letters in response to my New York Times column. And I was so excited about this plan, but there were like a few missing pieces uh, to this idea. The first of which was that I needed to learn how to drive, Um, (laughs) minor detail. (laughs) And so I did. And like the ink (laughs) on my license was barely dry when I set out for the road. And within the first five minutes of my road trip, I kid you not, I drove the wrong way up Ninth Avenue. In, in New city. York City. So scary. It was so <laughs> terrifying. It's truly the closest I've ever come to death. <laughs> when I left home for this road trip, I was so full of doubts. I had borrowed my friend's car for the road trip. So that was like its own anxiety inducing exercise. Cause I kept being like, wow, I really hope I don't like crash this car or fuck it up anyway. Sorry. I don't know if I'm allowed to swear. Um, <laughs> please okay. do please swear. Okay. okay. Um, my plan was to, to camp in between these different visits. And like the first time I tried to camp, I realized I hadn't actually gone camping since I was about 10 years old and had no idea how to set up my tent. So I had to like look up a YouTube tutorial which is like the opposite of the wilderness experience I'd cooked up in my fantasies. And even the first stop I made to visit one of these individuals on my list, like as excited as I was to meet them, as much as I trusted that there was like wisdom and guidance to be gleaned and a kind of powerful moment of connection to be had. It was also really terrifying to like drive up to somebody's house 
that you've never met and knock on their door? Did they know you were coming? Like you, you had set up a plan like, Hey, this is who I am. You wrote to me at one point in time. I'd love to come visit you. Like how did you initiate? So before I left home, I sent off about 22 letters to different people who'd written to me over the years. In a lot of cases, when they'd first written to me, which had been like years earlier, I hadn't been well enough to respond. So I didn't know if they would remember me. In some cases, I didn't know they might still be alive. But I just picked the people whose stories or letters had stayed with me. Mm. And they had such different stories and came from such different backgrounds But the title of my column was Life Interrupted. And what was interesting was that it wasn't just people who had had cancer or who'd been sick, but who were grappling with all kinds of life interruptions. I visited a family of survivalist ranchers in Montana. I visited a high school teacher in California who was grieving the loss of her adult son to suicide. I visited a prisoner on death row named Little GQ, who had never been sick before. He does uh, a thousand push-ups every day to start off his day, (laughs) but who related to certain parts of my story uh, and kind of wrote me this beautiful letter about the parallels between, you know, my experience of medical isolation and his experience of solitary confinement. Mm. So at this point, when you, you're like, I'm, I'm getting my license, I'm borrowing my friend's car, I'm driving up 9th, 9th Avenue the wrong way, my, <laughs> my dog is with me, I haven't camped in however many years, what are, what are people in your life saying to you at this point? Are they like, no, don't go? Were they supportive? Was it really challenging to just step into, I'm doing this and I'm doing it? I think the biggest hurdle wasn't what other people thought. It was my own fear because at that point, even just like the physical act of driving felt challenging. I would drive for two hours and I need to like pull over in a McDonald's parking lot to take a nap because it was so strenuous. Just the act of like sitting upright and like focusing on the variables of traffic As far as other people's responses, I'm not sure that I really asked anyone (laughs) what they thought about my plan. Rightfully so. (laughs) I did have this like very wealthy acquaintance who suggested to me that I should get a chauffeur for my road trip. And I kind of like (laughs) politely said something like, hmm, that's an interesting idea. (laughs) Thank you for that Completely unrelatable. (laughs) So really, really, it was a dialogue within yourself with your own fear of these are all the things that could be scary. These are all the things that I'm working through, but I'm still going to do this. And that moment, I, mean, I, I just feel like for so many of us, we, we all have so many fears and mm. there are so many opportunities for us to not do the things, for us yeah. to not really live, to, for us to not take the risk, for us to not go in the upstream direction. And then there's the moment where you, you either feel them, you're in conversation about them. I don't know, but there's, you have the ability to then still take action and go. Yeah. For me, I didn't have some dramatic epiphany on like my bathroom floor where I was like, ah, my life needs to change. I'm going to embark on this road trip. It was like a series of 
I would say, low points that led me to the decision that I needed not only to do something, but probably something drastic. I had tried and struggled and failed to figure out how to move on from this experience. And I understood that there's this way in which you can get trapped in your trauma. It can almost like harden and calcify around you like a, like a fly trapped in amber. And I could feel that happening to me. And it was this realization that if I didn't, you know, I didn't want to run away from my life because I, you know, I grew up moving all the time and I knew that you can change your zip code, but your, you know, your past and your problems are going to follow you wherever you go. But I knew that I needed space from what felt familiar to me for me to figure out who I wanted to become. And I knew that a long journey like this didn't mean that everything was going to be different and that my life would miraculously be figured out, but I knew that something would change. That I think was exciting to me. This act of experimenting on yourself and almost, you know, after like being in clinical trials and cancer treatment, this is almost like my own spiritual clinical trial where I thought I'm going to force myself to sit in a car with my thoughts and do a lot of things that scare me from driving to being alone to navigating the world. And it might be a total disaster, but like something will come of it. Um, and so that I think was really what I anchored myself in. And trust. Yeah. And something did come out of it. <laughs> something extraordinary. I mean, thinking about the interviews and the conversations that you had and now with your, with your memoir and your book to be able to share that experience and what you said before of there's, there's a difference between maybe stepping into something because you know that this is just what you want to do, but that there was that inspiration in there that you wanted to help other people do it too. Yeah. And I don't even know that I was trying to inspire anybody because at that point in my life, I had like no illusions that I was in any place to be advising or guiding other people. But I do believe in the power of human connections and interactions mm. to shake something loose in us. If anything, I knew that meeting these different people and the conversations that we would have would be profound experiences and that I would learn something from them. And I did. They were all extraordinary and all so different and so surprising in ways that I couldn't have predicted. So amazing. Going back a little bit to the isolation project, it's, you know, you said I didn't necessarily realize or know that like my goal was to pull this out of people, but by doing that for myself, it's you kind of fallen into this, I guess your purpose. Yeah. Your, your, your work. That's how I kind of found out about you was through the isolation journals going stir crazy in my 350 <laughs> square foot apartment, like reteaching myself guitar and pulling out all my old journals. The isolation journals really like reawakened this love for writing that I think I kind of forgot I had. And I'd love to just hear how did that start for you? Was that kind of it? Was it, I'm also going crazy. Let's all write together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yes, definitely. I was going crazy. <laughs> I've always loved to write, um, but it's been, 
especially important to me in difficult passages. And so when I was sick, my family and friends came up with the idea of doing something called a hundred day project. And the idea was really simple. We would each do one creative act every day for a hundred days. And so my dad's hundred day project was to write um, a childhood memory every day for a hundred days that he compiled into like a little booklet that he gave to me at the end of it. Uh, My mom, who's a painter, painted a ceramic tile every day. And at the end of it, she hung it in a kind of shield above my bed and she called it Suleika's shield and told me it had protective powers. In my hundred day project, this is like long before the column was to journal, to write in my journal every single day for a hundred days. And it didn't matter to me how long it was, how good it was. Often it was just a sentence, but in that journaling practice, I really reconnected to that love of writing because to me, the journal is this rare space where like the stakes are very low. Nobody's (laughs) going to read it unless you have like a prying mom like I did in high school. Um, And you get to be your like most unedited self. And it's really a space of freedom and discovery. It can be a to-do list or it can turn into a poem when everyone went into isolation, I started to think about how I might share this writing and journaling practice with other people. So I invited some friends and different artists to offer some words of inspiration and a journaling prompt. And so we've been doing that now for a year. The project's free. You can sign up for the newsletter and you get a prompt every Sunday. But really for me, what it's helped me understand is the power of writing and converting isolation into a kind of creative solitude and and even connection or community. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's been so beautiful to see that happen through the isolation journals community. I mean, I write, I have friends that I write with that also receive the, the prompts. I love the studio visits, particularly the one with Elizabeth Gilbert, what a dream. Uh, She (laughs) is a dream. (laughs) Oh my gosh, a dream. That project for me and that kind of like led me to your TED talk. And then, I mean, you can definitely count me into the Suleika fan club. I'm like, (laughs) I just love the the vulnerability that you present in your work in this way where it's unabashed and it's so beautiful. I think Mm especially these days that everything gets shared on social media and like how many mm-hmm. times can I tweak it and edit it and, and mm-hmm. rearrange it to, mm-hmm. to fit this mold of what someone else wants to read or, or what I think mm-hmm. they should be reading instead of just, no, this is how I feel. This is healing through the expression. And letting it be for you. Whereas maybe some of the writing, like you're saying, it goes into a a post that's going to be seen somewhere or that expression that's going out into the world, but Mm -hmm. having this very intimate conversation with yourself, but letting it just be, letting it be for you. Exactly. Was the process of, in in your TED talk, you talk about of, of opening up your heart again after a traumatic event and experience was the process of opening your heart up again and returning to relationships and love and what was that like? Oh my goodness. Let me just go on record and say <laughs> that I 
Love, love. I am someone who like falls headlong into love in a way that probably isn't wise. (laughs) You know, the strange thing for me coming out of treatment is I'd gone through a breakup with my then boyfriend, who was also my caregiver. I'd lost so many friends during treatment. I think out of the 10 young cancer patients, I became really close to only three of us were alive. And there were other kinds of losses. As a result of my chemo, I became infertile. So there was like the loss of identity, the loss of motherhood, of like certain ideas of how I thought my life would go. Because of all that, there was this way in which I felt like I'd reached a kind of precipice of what I could endure. And Mm -hmm. I was in this super self-protective place where I felt like I couldn't take any more loss. I couldn't take any more hardship. And I kind of built a moat around myself. And occasionally I'd like let the drawbridge come down for like a minute and then I'd pull it back up. But not long after I finished treatment, I did meet someone. I met John, my partner, John Batiste, who I know was on the podcast. Mm -hmm. And he's someone, you know, I've known forever. We met at band camp when we were teenagers Oh, wow. Overlapped at Juilliard. Uh, I was in the pre-college program and he was an undergrad. The day he found out that I was sick, he came to the hospital with this whole band unannounced and they put on this impromptu concert right there in my hospital room. And they started to second line and all the patients and doctors and nurses kind of filtered out into the hallways and everyone started to sing and clap and dance. And it was like truly one of the most beautiful moments. So I think were it not for the fact that I'd known John for as long as I had and for just how extraordinary he is, I probably wouldn't have dated anyone seriously at all. But I had this feeling of like, you know, when we first got together, like this is someone really special. And I really wish I were in a different place in my life when this started. I wish I knew who I was and what I was doing. So all this to say that I did not feel ready for a relationship, but sometimes love appears even, or maybe especially when it's inconvenient timing. Mm -hmm. And he really gave me the grace of taking the time that I needed and taking the distance I needed. And, you know, when I went for my road trip, he said, I'm here and I'll be here when you get back. And he also said to me, you know, you can keep pushing me away, but I'm still here. (laughs) That is a testament to just like what an incredible Mm. man he is. But it was difficult. And, you know, it's something that I really had to kind of work through. And I had to realize that you can guard your heart and you can try to protect yourself against any future losses or any future pain. But what that also means is that you're protecting yourself from the possibility of love. Mm -hmm. And in the end, for me, love was more Mm -hmm. important than safeguarding against loss. What a visual. We had the pleasure of interviewing John on our first episode. 
And I told him, I, I draw, I was just like, you better tell Suleika we're coming for her. You know, <laughs> we love you. You're great. But like, we want her too. <laughs> I love it. Um, and it, it is like, you can definitely tell his, his energy is very infectious. And actually, I mean, I feel the same about you and I just can't imagine this power couple. You know oh, no. what I mean? Is it difficult or I guess difficult is the wrong word, but I guess in being in partnership with someone that is also creative, right? Someone that also like upholds ritual to such a high stake for him. How do you guys navigate that? Is it easy to kind of do it together or is that where it works? Is that there's freedom to kind of do it separately as well? I'm of the opinion that all relationships are very difficult. Um, (laughs) So let me just say that. But I think because our work isn't just our work, it's our life, Mm -hmm. it's our vocation. There is a mutual kind of understanding and respect for that, even though we're in different fields. Pre-pandemic, we both spent a lot of time on the road and that can be so challenging. And we had to kind of figure out different ways of staying connected through that. John actually came up with such a beautiful idea. And at one point, you know, we were both on the road for a couple of weeks and he suggested that we write each other letters every day, uh, which became our form of journaling. So we would set a timer for 10 minutes and we would each write each other a letter and we'd screenshot it and text it to each other. So beautiful um, that We actually kept doing that even when we both got back home, because there's this way in which, especially, you know, when you're busy and doing your thing Mm -hmm. and living your life, you can have conversations with your partner, but there's not always the energy or the space to get into the deeper things. And Mm -hmm. the magic of writing is that certain things appear that you didn't even know you were wrestling with or thinking about. So that letter writing practice for us was so hugely important. I laugh every time I hear, you know, stories of (laughs) friends of mine who during the pandemic are like, ah, I want to murder my partner because we're (laughs) cooped up in the same space. And I think for John and me, that's definitely true. I'm someone who needs complete quiet Mm. to work. And John obviously needs to make music and and sound, (laughs) um, which is why. Why you have your little cozy cottage. Yeah. Um, But, you know, I think, there are also so many beautiful things about being in a relationship with someone who's also so creative. We've been collaborating a lot, which is new for us. Wow. I love that you posted on your Instagram the other day, you playing the upright bass and him just giving you that little pep talk. I like know. Is that what you your, was it. that your instrument in Bandcamp? That was my instrument. instrument. But I played classical music. I wasn't as cool as the jazz kids. (laughs) But we decided that we wanted to kind of perform and and compose music for my audiobook. So I dusted off my bass and we did that. But I was very out of practice. So John had to give me multiple pep talks for me to even just like (laughs) play a note. And, you know, with his album that's coming out in March called We Are, I took the picture for the cover. So it's just been fun to find little ways to, yeah, little kind of points of intersection in our work, which is a new thing. And I think it's something that's been possible in part because of the pandemic where, you know, for the first time in our relationship, we're just at home. You know, after being on the the journey that 
you've been on and where you are and knowing what it's like to come after you're in remission or moving to that next phase of healing for people that have people in their life that either are diagnosed with cancer or going going through a very traumatic illness and are there a couple of things that you could offer to to kind of keep in mind with that interaction and communication illness even if you're surrounded by family and friends is such an isolating experience i would urge people to try to reimagine how they think of community and connection i made a group of friends through Instagram of all places that were also going through cancer treatment and we became each other's support system and accompanied each other to chemo and really they are the ones who got me through that experience but you know the internet gets a lot of flack uh, but it also means that even if you're kind of confined to a room or you're stuck in bed there's all kinds of possibilities of connection that are available to us at our fingertips the other piece i think is creativity whether you're someone who thinks of yourself as creative or who's like never drawn something or written something in their life the act of trying to express the inexpressible which i think illness is inexpressible so often has been so therapeutic and journaling so for our listeners to to find your book where do they go? Support your your local uh, independent bookstore. Between Two Kingdoms is available anywhere that books are sold. Or if you don't like reading, listen to the audiobook. Awesome. Will you read us a little bit of your book? Yeah. Okay. This is a passage about taking my friend Melissa's ashes to the Taj Mahal in India which was a trip I took before my actual road trip. So I'll read that. Taking Melissa's ashes to the place she loved most doesn't lessen the pain of losing her, but it has shown me a way that I might begin to engage with my grief. It has introduced me to the role of ritual and mourning, the ceremonies that allow us to shoulder complicated feelings and confront loss that make room for the seemingly paradoxical act of acknowledging the past as a path toward the future. It gets me thinking about the other ways we mark the crossing of thresholds, birthdays and weddings and baby showers, baptisms and bar mitzvahs and quinceañeras. These rites of passage allow us to migrate from one phase of our lives to another. They keep us from getting lost in transit. They show us a way to honor the space between no longer and not yet. But I have no predetermined rituals. They are mine to create. Thank you so, so much. Thank Thank you you you. both. This is so fun. I hope we get to cross paths in person once this pandemic is over. Can't wait to read your book. Thank you again. Thanks, Zuleika. Bye. Bye. The class at its core is a movement practice. If you're not already a digital student, try our 14-day free trial by downloading our app or going to digitalstudio.theclass.com. 
to view our shop, learn about our teachers, and explore more, please visit theclass.com or follow us on Instagram at theclass. This week in the Class Digital Studio, we have new on-demand content releasing. The Class Light with Carla, the Class Cardio with Brooke, and a 60-minute class with Natalia. If you're a digital student and not yet a part of our Facebook group, you can join the conversation at theclass.com slash Facebook group.